We, um, last week, started a new series called Neighbors, and we said, you know, if we're entering into a new neighborhood, which we are, right? This is, we're still in Barberton, but we're kind of in a new neighborhood in Barberton. We said we should talk about what it means for us to be good neighbors, what it looks like for us to be good neighbors. And so last week we talked about a bunch of different kinds of neighbors, right? Like we all have lots of different experiences with neighbors. So you got watching neighbors. I shared the story of my grandma last week. She like never uh, left the house and yet she knew everything going on in her neighborhood because she watched out the window. So yeah, like watching neighbors. You have nosy neighbors. You have complaining neighbors. You have hermit neighbors that you never see, but you know they're there because the lights come on and off inside the house, right? Like we have busy neighbors, territorial neighbors, obnoxious neighbors. We have all these different kinds of neighbors. And then we have good neighbors as well, right? Probably all of us have had the pleasant experience of having some good neighbors. And we asked the question last week, we said, what makes a good neighbor a good neighbor? You know? Like think about people in your life that have lived around you, like literal neighbors that have lived around you that were good neighbors. What made them so? And then and then we asked the question, we said, what kind of neighbor are you? You know? I, or, or maybe better said this way, what kind of neighbor would your neighbors say that you are, right? And we looked at this passage, something that Jesus said in Matthew 22, that we said, man, this can fundamentally change our lives. It can fundamentally change our lives if we allow it to and if we take it seriously. And this is what he said. This is Matthew 22. We'll throw it up on the screens. And I'm actually going to come back to this a little bit later this morning. But this is what it says. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, which were some of the religious leaders at the time, and the Pharisees, which were other religious leaders at the time, got together. And one of them, an expert in the law, tested him, tested Jesus with this question. Here it is. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? In all the law that God's given us, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. He said all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And what Jesus does here is he boils this down. This is the whole Bible, right? He boils the Bible down really to two statements, two truths. First one, love God with everything that you've got. And the second one, love your neighbor similarly. And so we asked the question, we said, okay, that's, that's good for us to know. Then who's our neighbor, Right? Like, how would Jesus define who our neighbor is? And we look very quickly at how Jesus answered that exact question when somebody asked him that. Well, who is my neighbor? And basically, we looked at the parable of the Good Samaritan really quickly. But basically, what we concluded is that, to, according to Jesus, everyone's our neighbor, right? Even the people we may not really want to be our neighbors are our neighbors. And we believe this is true, right? Like, we agree with what Jesus says here. But in our connected world, where we can have like, these real-time conversations with people literally on the other end of the planet, we said, do you think it's possible that maybe we've gotten so broad in our application of who our neighbor is, we've actually neglected our literal neighbors, like our physical neighbors, the people that live right next to us? Because they're also, our literal neighbor is also our neighbor that we should love as ourselves. And so that's actually the purpose, kind of the focus of this series, is we're talking about our literal neighbors. And we said last week, we kind of ended our time saying, you know, many of them are lonely. Like many of them are struggling in lots of different ways, and they're looking for friendships. They're looking for purpose. 
They're looking for love. They're looking for acceptance. And we talked about, man, what an impact we could make if we would just do some basic things. Like if we would accept people for who they are, right? Like accept them, genuinely accept them. If we would take an interest in them, you know, like actually care about their life and the things that they love, the things that they do. Maybe if we would uh, like clear our schedule a little bit, create a little margin in our schedule to actually spend time with them, right? It's tough to be a good neighbor if you never talk to your neighbors, right? And we said, what if we serve them? Like we could have a real impact on our neighbors if we would just do a few of those things. And so I ended our time last week asking you to pray. We said, here's our action point. Like, let's just pray. And let's ask God to, to lead us to the right neighbors to have conversations with, right? And to open up doors that we could talk to them. And last week, to, to kind of help us with that, I introduced this shoe project that we're doing, which I'll share a little bit more about um, toward the end again. But it's a great way, one, to serve people on the other side of the planet with some very basic needs, with some shoes. But it's also a great way to get a conversation started with our neighbors that are literally right around us. And it's funny, you know, that some of the comments, it's funny the comments that you hear after a sermon. Sometimes you don't hear anything, but they're usually not the good sermons. But sometimes you get comments, and so it's funny some of the comments that you hear. Uh, like last week I heard, great message, I agree. But man, I got this one neighbor, ooh, he's a doozy, like there ain't no love in him. Or, or, or great challenge, pastor. Man, I got this neighbor and she is crazy, right? Like there is no being a good neighbor to her. And it makes me think, you know, loving loving good neighbors is easy, right? Like that's that's not challenging for us to love good neighbors. It doesn't take much effort. But how do you love your neighbor that's not really easy to love? You know? Like how do you how do you do it loving your neighbors that are kind of unlovely? You know? The ones whose, whose subs are blasting when they pull into their driveway at 2 a.m. You know, like, what are you doing that? You know, the, one, the ones who are always grumpy, who are always complaining about something. How do you do it loving them? How, how do you do it loving the ones who, who called the city on you the one time your dog pooped in their yard, right? Like, how do you do it loving your neighbors that yell at your kids? How, how do you do it loving your neighbors who you're pretty sure are selling drugs out of their house? How, how do we do it at loving those kinds of neighbors? I, I wonder if in our quiet moments that we wouldn't share publicly, we think God could not possibly expect me to love them, right? Like, we wouldn't say that out loud. But many times, we're living that out by our decisions every day of our lives, not talking to them, shunning them, neglecting them, talking about them behind their back. Well, I want you to see something this morning in the Bible, um, how Jesus interacted with a guy that's, that most people back then would have seen as a bad neighbor. In fact, they would have gone further than that. They would have seen this guy as a bad person. They would have seen this guy as somebody to stay away from, someone to take pity on. And so I want you to grab a Bible, if you would, and flip it open to John chapter 9. John chapter 9. A lot of people use their phones or your tablets. It's totally cool. If you don't have a Bible and you want one, we have a whole table full, a couple tables full of them back there. If you raise your hand, one of our ushers will, or John will get uh, one of those in your hands here. 
But John chapter 9, so the first books, first four books of the second part of our Bible, the New Testament, are Gospels, right? John is one of these Gospels. And they're all first-hand accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. And so John, the guy that wrote the Gospel of John, he's a guy that's actually with Jesus, right? Like he saw all of this stuff. And scholars know with great certainty that what we have, what we're about to read here in the Gospel of John is actually what John wrote. Okay? So what we're looking at is a first-hand account of a guy who was with Jesus and saw exactly the things that Jesus did. And this is what he writes. John chapter 9. So this is one of those weird passages where there's not a whole lot of context. It just sort of jumps into the passage here. So we don't have a lot of context. Uh, but this is what it says. John chapter 9, starting in verse 1. As he went along, as Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Well, neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it's day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night's coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground. He made some mud with the saliva, and he put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sin. So the man went washed and he came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly, formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man that used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was, others said no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were, were your eyes open? They asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and he put it on my eyes and he told me to go to Siloam and washed. So I went and washed and then I could see. Amazing story, right? John writes this. He was there. He sees this. Right? You know, I, growing up, I did a lot of um, knuckleheaded things, like a lot of stupid things. Did anybody have a make me feel better? Did anybody have like a point in their life where they had like this particularly high concentration of stupidness? <laughs> okay, thank you. Yeah, that makes me feel better. I had a point in my life between sixteen and twenty. And it was like the super high concentration of stupidness, just knuckleheadedness in my life. So I have two older sisters, and by that point, both of my sisters had moved out. So, you know, I had a little more freedom to, without them telling on me to get away with some stuff. And so it was during that time that I began just kind of making bad decisions. Like, I had begun to experiment with alcohol abuse. And it was during that time that I started uh, partying. And, you know, I remember my parents going away and having, like, secret house parties at our house, you know. Uh, it was that time that I entered into some unhealthy relationships with girls. Uh, it was even during those years I got arrested. Like, I did some pretty, it, it was stupid, right? Like high concentration of stupidness time in my life. Well, we had, uh, at my parents' house, we had a neighbor at that time. She, she's still my parents' neighbor today, named Mrs. Bodine. Jeannie Bodine is like the coolest name ever, right? Jeannie Bodine. And uh, she... Um, uh, was a superintendent. I think she was a superintendent. She was a, an administrator at a school, and she lived next door to my parents during all these years. I mean, they lived next door for a long time. And Jeannie, I'm sure she saw lots of my stupidness, you know, over the years. I can only imagine how much of my stupidness she saw. Like, it's actually really embarrassing when I think about it. And then, you know, she's a school administrator, so I think she's like extra attuned to kids' stupidness, right? So, like, I'm sure she saw all of these things, uh, me being a knucklehead time and time again. And so I gave 
Jeannie every reason not to like me. I mean, like, legitimately. I gave her every reason not to like me, to just write me off as a bad kid, or, or to call the authorities and get me in bigger trouble, or expose my sinfulness, or at least, at least shun me, you know, like have nothing to do with me. Another, check me off as another rotten teenager. And if you knew all my secrets, then I kind of was, at that point in my life, a rotten teenager. But what Jeannie did was the opposite. Like what, she, what she did was the opposite. She took a special interest in me. Like she, would, she would make it a point when she would see me to like walk across the yard and talk to me. And I mean, she, was, she must have been in her 60s or 70s. I thought she was retired back then. Um, she would walk across the yard to talk to me. She'd say, you know, hey, I saw you scored 15 points in your basketball game last night. Or I saw you won your tennis match. Or I saw you picture in the paper. That's so cool. It's amazing. Or how's high school going? You know, how's college? Like she would, she would take time to, to be with me, to spend, to, to talk to me. She would go out of her way to talk to me. It was like she saw something or someone in me that at that point in my life, I don't think I even saw myself. And you know what's so interesting? I was thinking about this. I don't think we ever had more than like a five-minute conversation. You know, it wasn't like she was inviting me over to dinner and like teaching me about life. It was nothing like that at all. It was like five-minute conversation here, five-minute conversation there. She didn't see a teenager with, you know, a high concentration of stupidness and sin. She saw a young man that she wanted to feel valued and accepted. And I can tell you, that made a huge impression on me during those years. Not only did it make me like her, you know, because I felt like, gosh, she's not judging me. It made me like her. But actually, it actually made me want to be the kind of man that she saw me as. It's interesting. This little passage about Jesus healing this blind young man reminds me of that. Like how Jeannie responded to me was very Jesus-like. It's fascinating to me how people just automatically assumed back then that in every case, when somebody had something bad happen in their life, it was directly connected to some sort of guilt that they had incurred, right? Like bad things equal punishment from God for sins that you had committed, right? Even in the womb, sins that you had committed or sins that your parents had committed, and so the prevailing assumption is that this guy who was born blind, which, man, that would have been, that's a tough lot in life anytime, right? Boy, especially 2,000 years ago, living in ancient Israel, that is a tough lot in life. In life. The prevailing assumption is that this guy who was born blind must have done something really bad to deserve that. Or his parents must have done something really bad for him to deserve that. Did you catch how it started? So the, the disciples see a man who's been blind ever since he enters the world, right? And what the disciples see, these, these future pillars of the church, what the disciples see is a dirty old sinner. Okay? That's what they see with this blind young man. And they literally ask the one who knows everything, Jesus, to like give them the scoop on what he did that was so bad to deserve being blind his whole life. It's almost like Jesus is like a tabloid reporter with an inside scoop, you know? Ooh, ooh look at that blind man over there. Jesus, tell us, what did he do to be good? What did he do to deserve being blind his whole life? Now, when you stop there for a second, I'm going to push pause. I'm going to ask you a question. Do you ever look at your neighbor's that way? 
And at first we go, our first reaction, if you're like me, we go, no way, I would never, you know, look at a blind neighbor and assume that he's been sinful since birth or something like that. We don't, we don't, we don't think that way, but do you ever look at them sort of inspecting them, you know? It's subtle and we can justify it in our minds, but do you ever look at them like trying to figure out just how sinful they really are? You know, or seeing as sort of me versus them, you know, I'm good, they're not as good, me better than them. That's kind of how the disciples are looking at this guy. You know, again, almost in a tablet sort of way, they walk by and they're like, whoa, look at this train wreck, right? Jesus, what did this guy do to deserve that? How, how much of a sinner is he? And we wouldn't say it like that, but we would say it something like this, man, look at my neighbor, Bob. I, I see Bob with a beer in his hand all the time. I wonder how much that guy drinks at home. I, I wonder how much an alcoholic Bob is. Right? You might say something like that. Or we might say something like, man, look at, look at my neighbor Susie, my teenage neighbor girl Susie. Man, she's dressing more and more like a boy. Every time I say, in fact, she's starting to look like a boy. I wonder if she's gay. She must be gay. Or, or, or you know what? I wonder if she's one of those transgenders that I've heard about. Where do we go? And look at my neighbor, Abdul. And he's from Iran. He's still got family in Iran. I, I see that, that little basement light on in his house in the way hours of the night. I wonder what he's doing down there. Yeah. I, I wonder if he's building a bomb. I wonder if he's a terrorist. Right? Guys, listen. Our job isn't to be the inspecting neighbors. That's, that's not being a good neighbor. That's not loving our neighbors as ourselves, just trying to coldly figure out where everyone is on the scale of righteous saint to wicked sinner, wretched sinner. That's, that's not our job. How did Jesus respond to this poor man who would have been blind, was blind his whole life, who would have been resigned to being a beggar to have to provide for himself? Like that's back then, you're blind. The only way you get enough money to live is you beg for money, right? He would have depended on everybody else just to live, and then he would have been judged by everybody. How did Jesus respond to this guy? To, to the disciples' question, you know, how, how, who sinned, him or his parents, that he's born blind? Well, the first thing that Jesus does is he corrects them, right? He corrected their erroneous thinking. He said, he said, neither this man nor his parents sinned. I wonder how Jesus said it, like we tell him that he said it, almost like, what are you talking about? Sin, no. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Right? He starts off, he corrects them. And then after he corrects them, he instructs them. He explains a little bit more what's happening. He goes on, he says, As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. And at first you read that. I don't know how you feel when you read that. At first you read that, you go, well, that seems a little bit out of place. Like, where, where Jesus is going with that? But I'll tell you what, there's, there's two things that really jump out to me that catch my attention in those two little verses that Jesus says. The first thing is that he uses the pronoun we in that. Did you catch that? He says, as long as it's day, we must do the works of him who sent me. And, of course, that included his followers back then, the disciples who were right there with them. But I think it's very appropriate for us to apply that to us as well. Almost 2,000 years later, we must do the works of him who sent him. There's a great promise in Ephesians that says God's got works prepared for you to do. God's got works prepared in advance for 
for you and me to do. And it's day right now. It's not night. It's day. We have a chance and we have the opportunity to do things that God has prepared for us to do. That's the first thing that jumps out to me. The second thing is when he says, while I am in the world, I'm the light of the world. And that hits me because I think I'm in the world. I'm a follower of his. Am I a light in the world as well? You know, like, I'm 41 years old, almost 41 years old, and I don't know how many years I got left. 30? 50? I don't think I'm going to live to be 100. But I think, man, I want to make the most of my time in the world. Ask yourself that question. Like, the, the time while God has put you in this earth, are you being a light? Are you being the light that he's designed you to be, doing the good works that he's prepared for you to do? And so Jesus, he corrects his disciples, he instructs them, and then he shows compassion to this guy. He says, after saying this, he spit on the ground, he made some mud with the saliva, he put it on the man's eyes, go wash in the pool of Siloam. So the man went and washed, and he came home saying, what did Jesus do? Man, he had compassion on this guy. He didn't, he didn't treat him like everybody else treated him. He didn't treat him like the blind, sinful beggar how did he treat him? He treated him as a person. Right? He treated him as a person in need that deserved kindness, that deserved compassion, and that deserved acceptance. And he helped him. And guys, I tell you, there's this beautiful promise numerous times in the New Testament that says when we're a follower of Jesus, God gives us his spirit to live inside of us. Right? And his spirit transforms us. It changes us. empowers us. It changes us. As God's spirit is working inside of me, I look at this and how Jesus responds to this guy, and I go, that's how I want to treat other people. I don't want to treat other people the way that everybody else treats other people. I don't want to look at people as, as blind, sinful beggars. Right? I want to look at them with compassion and kindness and acceptance. I, it's easy to look at our, think back to our difficult neighbors, right? It's easy to look at our difficult neighbors and look at the ways that they're difficult, you know? He's always grumpy. Why is he so mean? Why are they so territorial? You take a step in their grass and they want to call the cops. Like, like, why are they that way? It's so easy to look at the negative parts of them instead of seeing them as people that are in need, right? They have issues. They have struggles. They have needs. And I can't heal people, right? I don't, God's not giving me that gift. I can't cure their sicknesses, but I can treat them like a person. And so can you. We can, we can treat them like people that God loves. We can see them the way that he sees them. We can treat them with kindness. We can treat them with compassion and acceptance. And usually if we're, if we're actually looking for it, we can help them in some way. Incidentally, it wasn't just Jesus' disciples who unfairly judged this blind man, which shows me that this sort of spirit of judgmentalism is like a human thing. Like, that's part of our humanity. It comes very naturally to us to, like, sit in judgment. When somebody is struggling or acting in ways that we don't act or struggle with, it's so easy for us to look down on them and be like, what's wrong with that person, Right? And so other people were doing this too. You got the neighbors, they look at, at him after he's able to see, and they're like, Isn't that the beggar? Like, Isn't that the guy that we saw that we see begging on the corner every day and we do our best to ignore? Right? Like to them, he was an annoyance. I don't know, he was an inconvenience. 
The Pharisees, the, the religious leaders who, uh, after they see that this guy is blind, all of a sudden he can see and he's talking about it. They want to investigate, so they pull this guy in, and he's like, I don't know, he healed me. And they're like, no, he didn't. And they get really frustrated with him. And then they're like, who do you think you are? They actually kick him out of the, of the room. They're like, who do you think you are? Like, how dare you lecture us? You're a wretched sinner. Like, you're worthless. You were filled with sin from birth. That's how they treated him. Guys, can I ask a question? How do you love your neighbors? <clears throat> it's, a, it's a simple question. I asked it last week too. Like, how do you love your neighbors? Not the easy ones. Uh, they're easy. That's not, that's not hard. How do you love your difficult neighbors? <laughs> the, the ones that are really different from you. You know, the, the ones who are uncomfortable. The ones who are more, whose sins are more clear and obvious to everybody. Like, how do you love them? And of course, you know, this, this broadly applies to more than just our, our actual physical neighbors. But those are the ones I want you to think about right now. Like, get somebody's uh, uh, face in your mind. Like, think of somebody that lives around you. Last week, we put that little graph where we put our house in the middle, and we looked at the eight houses that surround us, right? And that looks different in different contexts. But think about a neighbor of yours that maybe is challenging. Like, how, how do you show them love? How do, you, how do you show them kindness and compassion? Can I give you the secret? I mean, there's a secret to this. It's not that much of a secret. To some of us it is. Can, can I give you the secret for you and I being able to love them generously? To, to show them overflowing kindness? To, to show them extreme compassion? To show them unconditional acceptance and actually feel it? Like, actually mean it. Can I give you the secret? It's, it's not uh, try harder. You can do it! You know, me being a cheerleader up here, that's not the secret. I'd be an ugly cheerleader, I'm just telling you right now. That's not, that's not the answer. It's, it's not to be guilt-driven, like, you really should do this. This is the right, I can't believe you're not doing this. I can't believe you're not loving your day. It's not that. It's not fear-driven. God is going to be really mad at you if you don't love your neighbors, even the challenging ones. That's not it either. You know what it is? Here's a secret. It's grace-driven. It's grace-driven. Let, let, let me explain. So go back to what we looked at last week that Jesus said. They come to Jesus and they say, what's the greatest commandment of all, Jesus? And he said, well, love God with everything you got. Right? Love him with everything you got. Make him the most important thing in your life, the most important thing of all of existence. And you didn't ask, but let me tell you what the second most important one is as well, because it's directly related to the first most important. Here it is. Love others. Love them like you love yourself. Just love them. And guys, when I think about those two things, and I think about Jesus' first comment with the most, the most important command, love God with everything that you got. Let me ask you a question. Why should we love God so much? You ever think about that question? Like we're, we're, we're told we should. We are expected to love God. Why, why would we love God so much? Well, because He's worthy. He's great. He's powerful. He's holy. He's just, right? Like He's all those things. Sure. He, he's, he's all those things. But if you're like me, those qualities about God sometimes can feel a little bit impersonal to me. You know, you know, you know what draws me to God? 
He's all those things. He's worthy. He's great. He's powerful. He's holy and just. And yet, he loves me. Like he's all those things. He's, he's huge. And he knows my name. He, he, he cares about me. In fact, he sent his son to die for me. And I know myself. I'm none of those things. I, I, I'm not worthy. I'm not great. I'm not powerful. I'm not holy. I'm not just. And he loves me anyways. Even though I don't deserve it. And he offers me the ultimate expression, the ultimate expression of kindness and compassion and acceptance by offering me grace and offering me forgiveness and offering me a new beginning. And when I say yes to his offer, he doesn't, he doesn't force it on any of us. He doesn't automatically extend it to all of us. We have to receive his offer. offer. We have to accept his grace. But when I do, it changes everything. Like it changes everything. I'm not worthy, but he says I'm valuable. I'm not great, but he says I'm special. I'm not powerful, but he gives me his Holy Spirit to live, his powerful Holy Spirit to live inside of me and change me and empower me. I'm not holy, but he's making me holy. I'm not just, but he's making me just. See, when I say yes to Jesus... God treats me and you, sinners, wretched sinners. He treats us with grace, compassion, kindness, acceptance. He gives, he gives us the opposite of what we deserve. And guys, listen, it's so important. The more I grasp that, the more I understand grace and grasp it, the more and more I will fall in love with God. And the more and more that I fall in love with God, the more I will love the things that He loves. And you know what He loves? My neighbors. Even the hard ones. Even the challenging ones. When I'm struggling to love my neighbors or anybody else, for that matter, I'm going I'm to say really strong, extreme statement that I've been thinking about all week and I think it's true. I believe it's true. If I'm struggling to love my neighbors, it is 100% every single time a sure indicator that either one, I've never understood grace, I've never understood grace, or I've forgotten just the extent of grace or I've been distracted. I'm struggling loving other people. It's because I, I'm forgetting, or I never fully understood. I see. I think I think this is part of the reason that God gives us long-term memory. I am weird. I think about this stuff. I think He gives us long-term memory so that we remember like the rotten things that we've done, so that we remember what we've been forgiven for. If we forget all that stuff, we forget like how gracious God has been to us. Knowing and loving the God who generously overwhelms us with his love and grace will cause us to love our neighbors the way that he loves them. Every time. Knowing and loving the God that generously overwhelms us with his love and grace will cause us to love our neighbors the way that he loves our neighbors. Every time. I challenge you, if you're struggling to love your neighbors, and the easy ones are the easy ones, right? 
but the hard ones. And of course you could extend this beyond your literal neighbors. If you're struggling to love anybody in your life. And I realize people hurt us. People can do terrible things to us that make it hard for us to love them. If you're struggling, I challenge you this week. Think about grace. Read about grace. Pray about grace. It's a challenge. So I'm going to invite the band to come on up. And so this is a little bit, bit different than when we were at the school. When we're at the school, they could kind of sneak in off backstage. So there's a little bit of distraction. Sorry about that. I'm going to invite them to come up. And as they're coming, I want to explain uh, one more time about the shoot project. Because this is a huge thing that we're doing. So last week, um, I told you a little bit about it. We showed you a video. We're not going to take the time to do a video again. But basically, we're working, we're partnering with an organization called Souls for Jesus. And what they do is they collect shoes usually shoes that are already worn, right? Shoes that maybe you and I would throw away or would donate or something. They collect those shoes and they get them on the other side of the world to countries in Africa, to people that don't have shoes. And as they give them the shoes, they also give them the gospel. They tell them about Jesus. And so we're going to partner with them really for two reasons. One, it's a great way for us to help people that have great need, right? To work with Souls for Jesus and help people in Africa that don't have, have shoes. But two, it also gives us an opportunity to, to go and knock on our neighbor's door and have a conversation, to start a conversation with them, which we all know that can be the most awkward thing, right? If we've been living next to somebody for a long time and we've never talked to them, then it starts to feel awkward. Like, why do, like, what reason do I have to go knock on their door? We're giving you a reason to go knock on their door. And so last week I asked you to pray and just say, God, like, open up, show me the right neighbors to go to. And God, would you open up the conversations there, make it normal and natural that we get a chance, that I get a chance to, like, actually get to know them and love them. This week, in your programs, I don't have mine up here with me, but in your program, we put a little insert in there. It's a little card that explains a little bit about the shoe project. And here's what we're challenging you to do this week. Think of three or four neighbors. Take that card, go knock on their door, say who you are, say what we're doing with this, and ask them if they would have any shoes that they'd be interested in donating to send over to Africa. Okay? Most people, if they got old shoes in their house, they're willing to do that. Not too many people are going to kick the door in your face and call you a name, right? So give this to them and then say, um, if they are willing to give some shoes, say, would it be okay if I came back in a week? Give you a little time to grab, gather the shoes together. They came back in a week to collect the shoes from you. And in the back of the church, we have two big bins back there, two big cardboard boxes that you can just bring the shoes in here. Okay? And then what we're going to do on uh, November 30th is we have a packing event for this, which is going to be fun. Like, if you've ever done like Feed My Starving Children at Grace Church, I think it's, it'll be sort of a similar feel. But we're going to do it right here in the room. We're actually going to send out an all-campus email to you, uh, I think this week, is that right? I think this week, um, asking if you want to be a part of the packing event on November 30th to sign up for it. It helps us. If we have 10 people, we set the room up differently than if we have 200 people. So it helps us know. Um, and then after the packing event, we're going to uh, uh, put together another little card that you can go back to your neighbors a third time. So three conversations with them and say thank you. As I say, how many shoes that we've, that we've collected and just say thank you to them for doing that. And so you have three opportunities that are natural and good where you're actually helping people in Africa and you're engaging in a conversation with your neighbors. So that's the goal with this. If you have any questions about that, um, there'll be those of us uh, hanging around in the back, little lanyards around the neck. We can help in any way 
that we can. But uh, I'm excited to hear the stories of the doors that God opens up and the conversations that we have as we step out and do this together. It takes a little courage, you know, to walk across the yard and across the driveway to talk to our neighbors. But boy, imagine what God can do if we just take a step out and take a risk and ask for his help and provision along the way. So I'm going to pray for us and then we'll sing together.